This episode of the Upper Discussion Podcast is brought to you in part by Whiskey Lane. Launched in Kelowna, BC, and now expanding to Montreal, Whiskey Lane is on a mission to share their obsession with quality food and drinks with growing audiences by keeping the best local flavors on their minds and on their tongues. No matter what your business needs to grow, Whiskey Lane knows how to make it happen. Whiskey Lane, bringing long lines to the producers of specialty food and drinks. Go to whiskeylane.ca to find out more. And that's whiskey, the Canadian way, without an E. Hi, I'm Tom Zalatni, and you're listening to episode 294 of Up for Discussion, a show about great food and the people who love to make and eat it. Every week, we tackle a different ingredient, dish, or style of cuisine, sharing our favorite recipes and learning from our wonderful guests. Today, we're doing something a little bit different, and we are not talking about an ingredient, dish, or style of cuisine, uh, and are instead talking about gastro diplomacy or culinary diplomacy, or basically how food helps countries show the best or worst of themselves in the public eye. Before we dig in, I want to take a minute to acknowledge that the studio where I'm recording is situated within the traditional and unsurrendered territories of the Ganyangahaga First Nations. As settlers, it's important that we remember that the lands we occupy are not our own and that we engage in conversations that challenge the colonial mindset. My guest Billy and I are going to get into that a little bit as part of this episode, because you can't really talk about Canada's culinary diplomacy without talking about the fact that this is stolen land uh, and all of the sort of implications that that has on Indigenous cuisine. So we do touch on that a little bit here, uh, but I want to encourage you to take some time today and every day just to reflect on the relationship that you have with the land you live on and with the indigenous communities thereof. So this is a pretty big topic and one that's kind of ever-changing. It's another one I'm pretty sure I'll be coming back to fairly regularly. But to kick things off today, I'll be talking with longtime friend of the show, Billy F., about things that he's learned while studying this stuff. We're going to get into the Congress of Vienna, the effect of colonization on local food culture, and how Guy Fieri is maybe the ultimate culinary diplomat. Now, throughout this episode, we do mostly refer to it as the Vienna Congress instead of the Congress of Vienna. And before you get nitpicky, it's probably worth remembering that the people who actually hosted the event called it Vienna Congress. So any anglicization of it is pretty much equally valid, regardless of what it's called on Wikipedia. Okay, let's get into it. Billy, thanks for joining us again on Up for Discussion for the first time while it's an actual food show. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm great. Do you want to quickly tell people at home what you've been up to for the past little while and how it relates to today's topic? Yes. Well, so most of the times that I've been on the show is mostly as uh, a musician or just as a Montreal person, I guess. <laughs> but today you guys get to learn about like what I actually spend a lot of time studying, and uh, which is pretty much just like how food affects everything in our lives from the way we dress to the shows we watch to how it impacts political situations yeah i uh, it's funny because um we did i think last time you were on was during munch madness back in the spring so we were kind of playing with the idea of doing a food show at that point and kind of doing that as a test run this is exciting i i think there's uh there's something really cool about 
the interplay of food and culture. Um, so let's let's get into it. What's uh, what's been your kind of like focus in the stuff you've been like studying this year? Well, so for me, I am uh, I am a very classical man. So I mostly study um, how it's helped France. Okay. Uh, because obviously, I mean, if there's one thing we know France for worldwide, and that we know that they do very well, if not very weirdly for, <laughs> for some countries, uh, is food. And that all goes back to like one very, very specific in time that literally helped France maintain uh, its power over the years. What would that be? That was the Vienna Congress, oh. uh, which was uh, a little over uh, a little over nine months. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was from November 1st, 1814 to June 10th, June 9th, 1815. And basically during those uh, during those nine months, you had uh, 90, de- uh, 90 different delegations of rulers, nobles, heads of states. Back then we called them plenipotentiaries. Um, <laughs> and uh, so they met to basically uh, divide Europe and sort of maintain the order of Europe as we knew it up until right around the First World War. Okay, that's that's pretty huge. Yeah, yeah. And so basically, you know, after Napoleon I loses all his wars, basically like every important person in Europe met up for those 275 days or whatever. And, um, well, basically they were supposed to, they were supposed to, yeah, like actually get stuff done and sort of bring peace to Europe. And instead they partied a whole lot, uh, which ended up sort of, yeah, bringing peace to Europe ultimately. It's interesting when we talk about France's culinary like culture and impact, um, the thing that kind of comes to mind immediately for me, uh, and maybe you can speak more to this, but I think a lot about uh, meat and like butchering animals uh, mm-hmm. and how in the English language, all the words that we have for meat are the French version of that animal name, you know? So like mm-hmm. cow meat is beef, which is from the French boeuf. And, you know, chicken meat is poultry, which is from the French poulet. And, you know, pig meat is pork, which is from the French pork. Um, And I think a lot about how it really says something that (laughs) a lot of the words that we use in English to talk about our food are from French. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, just in our everyday language, I think it's something like 45% of, of English is derived from French, or at least some form of French. But it is true that when talking about food, we have always seen uh, France and the the French is sort of like the epitome of what you can do with food, because food for, you know, most of humanity was really just something you ate, like it was just something that you had to do to survive. But the French have really made a, a solid tradition of it, hence why, you know, they were the first, you know, I, I don't remember what the exact name of it is, but sort of the the art of the table in France uh, is part of the UNESCO World Heritage. Um, I'm sorry, that's the other thing you're going to notice today a lot, since I read a lot about this in French, there's a lot of things that I don't know 
what they're actually called in English. In French, we say uh, patrimoine mondial, culturel, immatériel. So immaterial, cultural. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's not just the food at the table, right? Like for years, I would hear that, and I thought that it was just the food. And then when I actually read it, it's the whole thing. Like it's the sitting down at a table, you know, having food in the middle, like having something very convivial with wine, with bread, with cheese, with the desserts. Like it's the whole you know, what most people have traditionally viewed as Sunday dinner, mm-hmm. but that sort of happens every night uh, on on most kitchen tables in, uh, in France. That's wild. I uh, So I looked it up. Uh, patrimoine is French for heritage. Yes. There we go. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I... <laughs> I wonder I wonder how true it is that French culture were the first to like sit down and have a meal at a table and and eat together. They were not. No, right? Like it it does it does feel like maybe they popularized it more than anything. Yeah, they made it an art and so that all sort of goes back to the I mean, obviously people ate like that in France already. However, there were so the Vienna Congress changed a few things, really, okay. that, that we still have today. Uh, so that was the first time that we went from uh, what we call service à la française, which is how most of Europe ate at the time, which was the king and, and the court, and basically five services, but of ten different things served at the same time. Or, sorry, eight. Okay. So you had eight very, very large uh, dishes to share that were brought to the table at the same time. And uh, you had five courses like that. Okay. Um, and so obviously since the tables were very, very big, uh, by the time that something got to you, it was probably cold and not that good. You know, they often joked that for years the Queen of England was the person who ate the coldest food in the world because she was the first one to be served, but she had to wait for everyone to be served before she could start eating. Right. So so that changed to what we call service à la Russe, Russian service, uh, because the Russians were already uh, pre-portioning everything into individual plates. Hmm. So you would have, you know, the, at the end of the day, the same amount of food, but everything would be warm, everything would still be good, because as soon as it was ready, it was put on a plate and served much like we do today. Right. Um, so that is something that changed. And then, uh, so obviously... Uh, Napoleon sent uh, Talleyrand, who was sort of like his uh, chief of council, I guess, uh, just to go and sort of mingle with all those people who were trying to essentially annihilate France if they could after all the wars that they had caused in the previous centuries. Sure, yeah. Um, And so really what saved France was food because all those heads of state convened to meet in Vienna, in Austria, and the French said, well, you know what, we'll take care of the food. So every night for for the time that the Congress was held, uh, Antonin Carême, who is probably the most prestigious chef of all time, uh, who literally invented like most of the recipes we can think of that sound French to us. He invented bechamel sauce. He invented hollandaise sauce. Like he he was the we called him the king of chefs and the chef of kings. Wow. Uh, he worked for pretty much everyone in Europe. So Napoleon sends him with Talleyrand to Vienna before leaving uh, Paris. Actually, 
Talleyrand uh, went to meet with Napoleon one last time and said, you know, Napoleon was trying to give him a speech of what he had to say, what he had to do, and Talleyrand said, I need more pots and pans than written instructions of what to do. And so it was just a huge party, like every night people eating like some of the most amazing food ever made, like very, very large tables, everyone's drunk, uh, and it's like all the high society of Europe, right? And so Talleyrand, uh, we called him the, the limping devil. He was, uh, he was not a very, very nice person. Um, but so he would just get people really drunk and then have spies walk around and just listen to people's conversations. <laughs> And then the next morning, he would have a report when he woke up of everything that was said, of what people were plotting. And so that definitely gave France the upper hand in the negotiations. That's kind of brilliant. And it was also, it was, you know, it was a time where everyone sort of wanted peace. Um, the uh, prince of line, who uh, the, the lines are a, a very, very... Uh, old rich family from Belgium that are still very very active in politics today um, in Europe uh, he was like a socialite and he was uh, he was named the master of pleasures for the Congress and uh, he wrote of it it's quite queer what we're living here for once pleasure conquers peace and he said uh, in French, le congrès ne marche pas, il danse. The congress isn't marching, it's dancing. Which really speaks to like how little stuff got done, you know? Basically a bunch <laughs> of old dudes got together, got really drunk, ate really good food, and we're like, yeah, what are we fighting about? We don't need to fight. Uh, and just, yeah, like that brought relative, and I use relative uh, very, very lightly here, <laughs> to, to Europe for the next couple of years for the next century or so. That's kind of amazing. It makes me think about how, like, you know, in, in today's world, we don't necessarily see that that often, right? We don't see all the world leaders getting together ha to have a dinner. Like, I don't think that that's something that I ever hear about happening. Mm -hmm. uh, and When it does, it's usually still in France. Okay. <laughs> that was actually going to be my uh, question. It, actually, yeah. it, happened, uh, it happened very, very recently. It happened uh, last year for the, um, or no, sorry, 2015 for the COP21. Okay. Um, United Nations uh, Climate Change Conference, where again all the world leaders were were received at the Elysee and had very very good food, very good wine. Um, didn't get very and, much done. Yeah, and also <laughs> I mean, since 20, 2012, 2013 or so, there is actually a sort of department of gastro diplomacy at. Um, within the French government okay. and they have really realized that it is a a big part of of what makes them special and of why people like them and why people still keep being nice to them even when they don't deserve it fair fair enough If you're enjoying this episode so far, I'd like to invite you to, to consider supporting the show on Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that lets creators like me work directly with their audiences, like you, to produce the best possible content without anyone having to break the bank. 
The reality is podcasting is my full-time job and I've got kids to feed. The more money we bring in via Patreon, the more I can afford to put time into research, writing, reaching out to awesome guests, and post-production on these episodes, which means I don't have to spend as much time doing odd jobs and commissions to pay the bills so I can really dedicate myself to this project and to making the best show possible for you. So if you've even got a dollar a month that you'd be willing to throw my way over at patreon.com slash up for discussion, it would be much appreciated. You, of course, get lots of sweet perks in exchange, including the ability to request topics for future episodes of the show uh, but you know if you're not in a position to support me financially and still want to help the show grow that's totally okay you can consider leaving a rating and review on apple podcasts or sharing this episode on your social media feeds so that other people will find it that is really the best way for the show to grow and it doesn't cost anyone a penny okay that's enough from me let's get back to billy I'm curious, like, do you know offhand anything about, like, Canada's side of cultural diplomacy? Do we have anything, you know, significant there? I really do not know much about that. Fair enough, yeah, no worries. (laughs) And, um, well, I mean, also, it's that Canada just doesn't have the same sort of... um, Uh, I'm not going to make any friends by saying this, but we don't have the same cultural approach to gastronomy. We're still a relatively young country. I mean, I would definitely argue whether there is such a thing as, uh, you know, modern Canadian, because obviously, uh, you know, all the First Nations had their distinctive cuisines which were very like focused on what they had around them and that I absolutely suggest that if you have never been uh, to a restaurant that serves uh, you know food like that you should definitely go and try it Mm -hmm. it's it's very good and I think that it's what we should be moving back towards because it was you know inherently sustainable Um, but yeah whether we have like real Canadian uh, gastronomy. People want to say poutine. People want to say maple syrup. Right. People want to say beaver tails, but those are all Quebec, so I don't know what that means. <laughs> I, I do find it kind of funny that like the province that is responsible for the things that people think of as kind of you know Canadian, Canadian is the one food. that everyone hits, hates on. Yeah. Well, I, and is also the one that like feels the most like France. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think it's an interesting point to think about. Uh, Canada and North America, you know, at large, uh, in terms of its culinary culture, it is very much a sort of like hodgepodge of foods brought in from a bunch of other places, as opposed to actually things that were indigenous to here. And Mm -hmm. that is one of the unfortunate effects of colonization, right? Is that like, we don't, you know, offhand know (laughs) all that much about the food that you know people who lived here first ate uh Mm -hmm. or you know i I mean you know there are obviously restaurants that still serve that and you know there are still people from first nations tribes who you know cook traditional food but it's Mm -hmm. not the sort of face of it publicly uh and that's a huge bummer yeah it really is because i mean also a lot of things that we think of as being french or european are actually you know, American, and when I say, I'm, I mean, the Americas uh, as a whole, you know, like, some things that have become, that have become very symbolic of other countries uh, are very new, you know, like, we think of the tomato first when we think of Italy, but tomatoes didn't make it to Italy until, you know, and like, 500 years ago. Right. Neither did potatoes, neither did 
chilies or you know peppers make their way to China. Yeah, I mean the the Colombian exchange has has fucked up a lot of things along the way, and I think that it has definitely profited the food culture of the colonizers a lot more because you know I mean now the potato is considered very French, even though it's not indigenous to to Europe at all. It's cool to kind of see the historical side of like you know cult- culinary diplomacy. Um, mm-hmm. Do you do you have like much insight into like present day kind of what that looks like? Yeah, definitely. Um, so again, I mostly know about France and how they work, but that's also mostly because um, they might be one of the only countries uh, you know putting it forward. However, actually, no, because uh, when I was in Korea. I was talking to people in Seoul and they were telling me that um, the government is now sort of injecting as much money into Korean food to promote it internationally as they do for um, K-pop. Wow. Uh, you know, K-pop was sort of like the the gateway drug to, to everything Korean. Uh, North Korea also for a little bit, I don't know if they still do, but for a little bit had a chain of restaurants that you could find all over uh, Asia that served uh, food from North Korea. Uh, And then, yeah, I mean, like, obviously I I know about Europe. I know, I don't know much about how the royal family um, uses, you know, gastro diplomacy, but I do know that uh, they are very specific about the foods they eat. Um, that a great deal of care is given to the ingredients that they use. Uh, But for England has being a monarchy, well, you know, yes, more or less, uh, (laughs) have, you know, a very codified way of eating. When you're the queen, you don't just, like, get your steak and, you know, rip into it. So the decorum becomes so important that uh, you know, even historically in things I've read, we didn't talk much about the food of uh, of England. Uh, and I mean, I, now things have definitely, definitely changed in like the past 30 years or so. But for a very long time, like you did not turn to England for for food tips. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like I, when I think about, you know, English food, like, I don't know, a lot of what I end up thinking about has pretty heavy, like, Southeast Asian influence as opposed to being, you know, inherently British, you know? Like I think about curries and I think about kebabs and I think about like I guess I also think about, you know, stews, but but yeah, like there's really not a a huge it it doesn't have the same sort of like presence, I guess, the same sort of branding, you know? Yeah. Like it does kind of come down to branding in a in a weird way. Um which uh thinking about the sort of like again coming to sort of our context in North America when I think about kind of culinary ambassadors here I kind of think about like the food network you know I think about celebrity chefs and I think about how it's kind of very like it's a little bit fucked up but it's also like kind of cool that that is the way that like you know capitalism has affected you know the the planet's understanding of North American cuisine is that it all comes down to like what puts the most 
money behind marketing. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think about that a lot because I, I mean, I'm someone who watches a lot of, you know, the Food Network, right? I, I'm constantly watching Food Network. And like, you know, if I look at the list, like <laughs> on Wikipedia, there is a list of, uh, you know, a handful of chefs who are part of the American Chef Corps, which is the like, you know, gastro diplomacy wing of the United States, like the White House has people who are specifically yeah. named to it. And like a bunch of them, I'm pretty sure like half of these people have been on guys grocery games. I mean, probably also we, and I'm sure that you know this, but I want to remind everyone that like Guy Fieri is a very, very important person in food. Like he has yep. radically, radically changed things. And I mean, also from what I've come to understand, and I don't know how true this is, but he's such a big, if not shareholder, stakeholder in the Food Network because his production company produces like half of the shows on there. Yeah. That he can really like decide who's cool and who's not and, and uh, you know, who becomes a great chef and who doesn't. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, let's not count those people out just because they were on Guy's Grocery. No, exactly. I, I but, should I should definitely clarify that I was not saying that in any kind of disparaging way. People who yeah. people who know me well know that I am a huge, huge fan of Guy yeah, Fieri. Yeah. It's it's more that I'm like I, I don't think of any other country's like mm-hmm. forward facing culinary like branding as being as like T V heavy, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, there's also like gastro diplomacy blunders. Like, I mean, to a certain extent, Trump serving a bunch of like fucking Big Macs and fried chicken <laughs> to their kids. Uh, that was fucking. That was something. That was you know, embarrassing. I mean, that's that's gastro diplomacy too. Because like, there's this you know this sort of uh, expectation that if you're received at the White House, like things will be grand. He's like, no, just give them fucking McDonald's. Who cares? And like, you know what? Let's not let's not act like McDonald's isn't great, but yeah. but it's definitely not what you expect when you go yeah, to the White House. I mean, and, and exactly, I think that uh, you know, gastro diplomacy also depends a lot on who's in power, right? Because uh, I mean, even for the French, for example, like Nicolas Sarkozy, uh, former president, famously Hungarian, former president of France. Yeah, he didn't like eating all that much. So, like, all the meals had to be, like, he, he sat down 30 minutes later, he was gone. Right. Uh, he was, they called him the, they called him the flash president in France because, like, everything had to go quick. Even, like, if he had a diplomatic meeting, he would be there, like, three hours, get back in a plane, go back to France before sunset. Right. And so he cut down on on the food budgets for the Elysee a lot and his personal chef is also the chef that prepares uh, meals for foreign dignitaries uh, so he sort of imposed that on everyone you know for years people were used to coming to France and having all this amazing produce and all these cheeses and desserts and wine and he was like no 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 like roasted chicken potatoes one glass of red wine that's it you know he sold off a lot of the a lot of the bottles that were in the wine cellar at the Elysee because he was like well why do we have wine when you know we have a very large public debt um sell off some wine yeah I mean you know what it's it's not the worst move it ended up (laughs) sort of being but you know whatever yeah I mean it's not the best move either but I kind of get the logic you know it's an asset that you've got (laughs) yeah it was um 
He was sort of virtue signaling. Well, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> what do you think it would take to get Canada's indigenous food, indigenous food culture to be more the sort of front-facing culinary culture of Canada? Well, so I think that definitely having things, you know, having a First Nations chef cook for foreign dignitaries would certainly be a good place to start. That might actually, that's a very, very, very good question. What would it take? I don't know. I mean, because also for all I know, like maybe they do serve them First Nations, you know, traditional foods. And I just don't know. Yeah, I mean, I feel like <laughs> I feel like it would kind of not necessarily be the most meaningful unless there were other changes that came with it, right? Because uh, I, I kind of feel like if they do currently serve food cooked by First Nations chefs at like, you know, world events, it's probably like, done with you know justin trudeau making sure that he gets a photo op with the chef while he's at it right yeah like i think we'd maybe we'd maybe need to have some some real systemic change first but i do think that it would uh it would definitely be a start yeah yeah well i mean i definitely think that there should be some sort of you know government initiative for uh first nations people to open restaurants that Mm -hmm. you know promote their their food culture because i think that that's you know, I I tend to think that food is a solution to everything, and I know that it's definitely not, but I feel like ultimately that's really all it boils down to, right? Like, as long as everyone on the planet can eat, so, like, to get there will take so much change that, like, the world will be such a better place, right? Mm-hmm. And historically, that's always, you know, it's proved to be true, like, it's very, very hard to have a bad time if you're eating good food, even if it's with someone you hate. Like, if the food has been prepared with, like, enough love and attention, and if it, you know, surprises you, takes you on a journey, like, that's what, you know, I, I feel like that was one of the big things about the Vienna Congress. Because like, obviously everyone knew about French food, you know? It was already... Uh, France was, you know, a major power for, for you know, a very large part of European history. Mm-hmm. Everyone knew about their food. Most everyone, you know, most every royal in, in Europe uh, knew how to speak French. Everyone loved French music. They loved Lully. They loved, you know, reading books in French. Uh, but everyone knew about the food. But to sort of have it be presented in the revolutionary way that Karen had, um, and also the the care and attention that was put into making sure that the f- the wine would go well with the food uh, for one of the first recorded times in in gastronomy. Hmm. That was like a real game changer. You know, how can you go to a war? You don't want to. Uh, you don't want to eliminate a culture that can bring you such pleasure through something as simple as food. Right. You know, I mean, like a simple, you know, chicken breast that is just like perfectly roasted with uh, white wine, cream sauce, and sauteed mushrooms. Very, very simple dish, but it can be life changing if done well, right. I think. And I think it could definitely change people's minds about about what food is and about what it means and about how it sort of seeps into everything we do. Like, you really are what you eat. 
I love that. On a sort of small scale, what I'm going to do with this episode is I'm going to put links in the description of this episode to like a bunch of uh, Montreal specific uh, indigenous owned like food companies, mm-hmm. restaurants, caterers, whatever, what have you, uh, in case anybody here wants to check out any of the like local stuff. And I'm going to challenge listeners who are not in Montreal to like check out what exists near you if you want help finding that. Uh, I mean, I'm probably not going to be better at Googling it than you are, but I'm happy to Google it. Uh, you know, feel free to hit me up. Billy, I have a final question for you before we wrap up. What meal have you eaten in your life that most radically changed the way that you thought about a culture? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I guess I can tell that story. But I'm also <laughs> sort of writing, trying to write a little I don't want to call it a book, but, you know, whatever. I'm trying to do a thing um, <laughs> uh, where I sort of talk about, yeah, like the most life-changing meals I've had. So, yeah, it was – we were in uh, Korea with my band, and uh, one day we were playing shows in Seoul, and one day we decided to, like, go to the nearest beach town, just, like, be by the beach. The beach was horrible. And we were just having like a really, really hard time finding the right restaurant for us because it's sort of like a boardwalk with a bunch of restaurants that uh, serve you like the seafood from the Yellow Sea that's right in front of it. And so we finally found this tiny little old lady that seemed to be by herself. And I was like, okay, guys, that's where we're eating. (laughs) (laughs) And so we try through like Google Translate the tiny bit of Korean I had picked up in my like four days there. Uh, Jake, actually my, my the other singer in my band and producer was way better at Korean than I was. And like total language barrier. Like there was nothing we could possibly do for her to understand us. And then she had, she pulls out her cell phone, calls this number, gives us the phone. And it's basically like this hotline for people who need translation help with tourists. Amazing. So we spoke to the girl on the phone. We were like, hey, we're here at this restaurant. We're just trying to tell her that we want like beers and snacks. And so she tells the lady and the lady like her smile just fucking lights up. And she's like, perfect. Sits us down, brings us like fucking liters of beer each um, and then disappears in the kitchen. And after like five minutes, things just start rolling out. She's bringing out like bowls of white rice, kimchi, all the like banchans, like all the pickled vegetables and just like huge unpeeled carrots, just like bite into it, Um, which was great. Like that's exactly what I wanted to go with my beer. Sure, yeah. We were having a very, very lovely time. She was super cute. We kept, you know, trying to talk to her. She would just like smile and nod. And then she brings out this thing and drops it right next to me. And I'm like, oh, that smells weird. What is that? And it's like this big bowl with a very, very clear broth. And at the bottom of it, something I just, I literally cannot make out what it is. I'm like, sort of looks like very, very, very small gnocchi. Um, So I'm like, oh, it's pasta. Okay, I'll try it. And I bite into it and I'm like no not pasta what is it it was like a bit nutty there was like the taste of the sea um and it hits me that this is most probably an insect so (laughs) 
I have the rest of the guys in the band try it, and they're like, oh, this is fucking terrible. And I'm like, yeah, it, like, it did not taste good. But it like changed so much about us, and, and we learned later that um, they were silkworms. Interesting. And because we, we were talking to our cab driver later that night, and he was like, oh, yeah, those are silkworms. She made that for you. And we're like, yeah, she's like, that's like a very traditional thing that grandmothers make for their grandchildren, like for snacks. <laughs> and the fact that like she probably knew that that would not be that we would not be that into it, but that she was like, here's something I make very well and that I make with a lot of love and I really, really want you to try it. That really meant a lot to us. Yeah. Or at least to me. And it, it definitely changed a lot you know I realized that like it, it definitely solidified the idea in me that I mostly travel for food and that everywhere I go I want to meet people like that who do things very well that are part of like their country's tradition um, and that are just happy to share it with everyone they can because that's why I had started cooking in the first place you know like I had a little story to tell and I thought that telling it through food was the right way to go yeah. so yeah, that was uh, that was definitely a, a nice life-changing one in recent memory. I love that. And I love especially that it was not something you liked and that it was it still left a really profound mark on you. I think there's something really cool about that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like, I, you also need to understand, like, I love Korean food. I know that it's not for everyone. I mean, like, even more traditional stuff, you know, like, more than just, like, the Korean fried chicken and, like, the stuff that we're used to. Um, and I love it for the same reasons that I love, uh, you know, the food from France is that it's, it's what in, in Italian they say, l'arte dell'arrangiarsi, but it's like doing the best you can with what you have, mm-hmm. despite being poor as hell. Like you're at the point where you're collecting insects to make a soup, you know? Right. That's not the obvious thing to do. So if you're put in that position, you probably went through some shit. Um, but the fact that you take this thing that like pretty much most of the Western world would not even want to try and that you do it every single day and that that's like your thing. I think there's something very, you know, beautiful and poetic about that. Taking something that is not like beautiful and turning it into something that sort of holds the weight of, of your country and of its traditions and of its history there's something really like powerful about those things that are like abundant and not necessarily the most like delicious or flavorful, but that you can, you can subsist off of, you know, mm-hmm. I, uh, I think about dandelion greens, right? Like dandelions are a weed. <laughs> we, we think of them as a weed. We think of them as kind of annoying for our gardens, right? If yeah. you, if you have a yard and one year there's a lot of dandelions, you're like, Oh crap. Now my, my lawn is just all dandelions. But they're edible they have they have a like a nice bitter green attached to them that you can like cook and and they're super good for you yeah and it's like maybe maybe we need to occasionally take a step back and say like what can we what what's the thing that we have here that we can like do something cool with yeah, and I mean, like, that's my entire thing right now, you know, like, after years of being very into, like, luxury food, and, you know, it was always, like, truffles this and fucking foie gras that, and I'm just, like, I want 
I want to go back to to the essence. Um, and I think that yeah, like cooking things that no one else wants to cook, like weeds, like there are so many weeds that are so delicious and people would love so much and that are like really easy to to make. You know, you can make like a gazpacho of weeds. Like once you understand <laughs> food, there's like you can make everything. Um, I had uh, had a really nice dish just very recently of um, yeah, like a dandelion green and parmesan uh, sorbet. Uh, uh, sorry, sable. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, that was just served with uh, like lightly uh, toasted sardines on the on the plancha. It was fucking life changing. Like, that sounds great. So I'm a little disappointed that it wasn't a sorbet. I was I was really intrigued for a minute there. I'm not gonna lie. Well, you know what? I'll definitely try to make a dandelion <laughs> sorbet for you. Sounds good. Okay, well, that feels like a good spot for us to end, and we we got to wrap up time wise. Um, do you have any kind of final thoughts or anything you want to plug before we uh, before I let you go? No, not really. Oh, new Ragers album coming out imminently in French. If anyone's into French, when you say imminently, like I, mean, I think it was supposed to come out last Friday, and then it delays. So this is like the busiest month that um, the province of Quebec has ever seen in terms of releases. Okay, like it's literally like record high. Wow. Because uh, I mean, we were all confined in our studio, so right. that was one music. Um, so I don't know. Probably that by the time this is out, it'll either be out or I'll have a date to give you. Okay. So, yeah. Um, fair enough. Well, listener. Uh, there will be a link in the description of this. It will either be to pre-order or to order, depending on, uh, you know, how things are going. Yay. Sweet. Uh, and people can find you at Billy F. Chef on the Twitters? Yes, on Twitter, on Instagram, on everything. Cool. Well, Billy, thank you so much. I, I definitely got a lot out of this. I think probably my listeners will have too. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's always it's always so much fun talking to you. And thank you for always letting me ramble about stuff I'm into. Of course. It's my favorite thing. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you to all the listeners. I'm out. Have a good night. Peace. Thanks, you too. Thanks so much for listening to Up for Discussion. Did you like this episode? Did you learn something? You can tell us all about it on Twitter and Instagram at DownWithTalking. If you like this and want to help me make the show even better, head to patreon.com slash upfordiscussion to donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll be joining the ranks of fine folks like Patrick, Gabriel, Kendallin, Carlea, Thomas, George Poppy, Killian, Sarah, Angelica, Will, Anne, Andrew, Laura, Kate, Erica, and Chantal. My patrons get access to a Discord server, the ability to request topics for episodes of the show, exclusive Zoom dinner invite parties dinner party invites even, and so much more. That's all at patreon.com slash up for discussion. And remember, it can be as little as a dollar a month. We also have merch. You can hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get all sorts of great stuff from our lovely friends over at Public, And of course, you can support us for free by leaving a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice and sharing the episode with a friend. Our theme music is by Zach Ingalls and our cover art is by David Flam. And you can find links to support both of them in the description of this episode and also links to uh, everything that Billy and I mentioned during the conversation that we had. Last but not least, the show is produced and edited by me, Tom Zalatni, as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. I hope you understand. It just takes a little time. It takes a little time. It takes a little time. Take
October Jones. And Hi, this I'm is fish with legs. I'm a fish with legs. Fish. I'm the elemental creature of water. And I'm here to tell you about my podcast called October Jones and Fish with Legs. Starring me and my best friend, <laughs> October Jones. Nailed it. October and Fish is a fictional series that follows me and Fish with Legs as we try to stop an evil two-headed snake from releasing a terrible monster. And make friends, and go on adventures, and get captured a lot, and escape a lot, and encounter racism. And what? And learn very special lessons every third episode. I have not learned a single lesson. Yes, you did. We learned about being friends, and authoritarianism, and colonialism, and how to defeat a giant crab. Authoritarianism? They're in authority for a reason, Fish with Legs. If everyone followed the rules set in place by the human government, then there wouldn't be- Fun for adults and kids. <laughs> New episodes on Mondays. You can find it wherever you find podcasts and, of course, on the Upford website. Okay, that's it. Bye! If you're someone who interacts with kids, you're probably familiar with moments of being asked questions you're just not equipped to answer. Whether it's the old favorite, where do babies come from, or the nuances of discrimination, Rad Child Podcast has your back. Each episode, your host, Seth Day, leads a discussion about topics like race, disability, loss, gender, sexuality, and so much more. Our goal is to give grown-ups the tools to talk to kids about almost anything. So come give a listen. Rad Child Podcast, helping to raise a generation of open, compassionate, rad kids. Available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else.